Well, good morning, church. It's so good to be here. For those of you that don't know me, uh, thank you, Rob, for the introduction. I'm Patrick Cho. I serve as the pastor at Lighthouse Bible Church here in San Diego. And uh, it really is such an honor and a joy to fill this pulpit and to serve you this morning. And we pray that it'd be a blessing to you. It was back in September 2013 that I had heard that Steve Lawson was going to be having a pastor's conference down in Mobile, Alabama. And uh, Sinclair Ferguson, who's one of my favorite preachers to listen to and to read, uh, was also going to be there. So I thought, why not ask the elders if we could go down to Mobile, Alabama and enjoy that conference. By the way, if you're ever down south, grilled oysters. You will thank me later. I don't even like oysters, but grilled oysters, I told them, if, if, if I'm ever in, on death row and get a last meal, grilled oysters. <laughs> Anyway, we were at that conference, and they were having a time of introduction, and uh, lo and behold, all the way down south of Mobile, Alabama, uh, there was another pastor from San Diego named John Leader, and uh, we uh, met up during that conference and just thought, of all places in the world, uh, we got to meet another San Diego pastor here in Alabama, and that's when I first met John, and the thing that really stood out to me about John uh, was his love of the truth. Uh, we had a Q&A time in Steve Lawson's living room, and the questions that he asked and just the interactions that we had were a real blessing. And uh, from time to time, we'd run into each other at Shepherd's Conference and say hi, and uh, always talked about wanting to grab lunch together. And I'm really bummed that we didn't get to do that. I uh, really wish that I got to know him better. Uh, and yet, we rejoice in the hope that uh, we will have that opportunity in the future. So praise God. Uh, for that. And it's also just been a real, real blessing to get to know the leaders here, uh, to get to know Sean and, and Mark and Matthew and, and uh, Ty and Rob and all the guys. It's just been really sweet uh, to spend time uh, with them and to uh, encourage their hearts. And, and I can't tell you how sweet it is to have another church uh, in San Diego that is so like-minded, uh, that loves the truth, that loves preaching from the Word, uh, I mean, so many similarities between Pacific Hope and Lighthouse. We even use the same hymnal. hymnal. So it's, it's just really great. Uh, and I feel so much at home here. And so thank you so much for having me. Well, if you have a Bible, if you haven't already, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, our goal this morning is to look at verses 7 through 14. 7 through 14. And for the sake of the context, I'm actually going to read starting in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, this is what God's Word says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore... Do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Please pray with me as we open up God's word together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time this morning. What a joy it is to be here at Pacific Hope. Lord, we're grateful for this ministry and for the saints here that come to worship you and to serve, Lord, each other. And we're so grateful, God, for the truth of Jesus Christ, which is our hope and our salvation. And Lord, we come confessing our dependence upon you. As we open up your word, we understand, Lord, that we're not going to know it and especially how it applies to our lives and how it can accomplish change in us, except by your help. And so we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see the wonderful things in your law. Help us, Lord, to understand your truth and to humbly come before you, God, that if there's any need for change in our lives, that you, uh, through your spirit, would accomplish that in us. And through it, Lord, we pray that this ministry would be strengthened, that this body would grow. All for your glory, for the sake of your name, we pray. Amen. All right, so I want to do a little bit of a word association game. I'm going to say a word and you give me its opposite. Pretty easy, right? So if I say big, you would say? Small. Small. Good. You're, you're doing good. Uh, if I were to say, I don't know, uh, good, you would say? Bad, good, awesome. You're very good at this. And if I were to say light, you would say what? Dark, dark. good, darkness or dark, right? Uh, one person at Lighthouse said heavy. Uh, that's clever. Uh, <laughs> but you're, you're good at this. And, and if you understand that light and darkness are opposites, then you are going to be in good shape as we look at this passage. If you understand the contrast between light and darkness, then this passage is going to make a lot of sense to you. And I know that that sounds somewhat simplistic, uh, but honestly, in a lot of ways, this passage is fairly simple, that there is light and there is darkness, and that they are not to fellowship with each other. And, And so I don't know if the most difficult part of this morning is necessarily going to be to understand what the words say. The most difficult part is going to be to consider how this flushes out in our lives and how it applies uh, to us individually. This contrast between light and darkness goes as far back as Genesis 1, right? When God created the heavens and the earth, and on that first day, he said, let there be what? Light, and there was light. Even the slightest light, if you know, if you've ever been in a situation in a room that is just pitch black. And I'm not just talking like a dark room. I'm talking like you wave your fingers in front of your face and you can't see your fingers. I've been in that situation from time to time and it is, it's kind of creepy, right? And, And you know, if you've been in that situation, that even the slightest light will dispel the darkness. Uh, my wife and I play a game sometimes. Uh, we don't have to do it as much anymore, but it was, it's uh, who can get to bed first because the person who gets to bed second has to shut off the lights. And uh, I usually let her win. <laughs> and so uh, I will stand there by the light switch 
and study the room, right? And understand where all the things are, all the obstacles on the ground, so that when I shut off the light, I'm not stubbing my toe or hitting my knee on the edge of the bed or anything like that. And, and, uh, and that's just the way it is. But you understand that if you just stand there for a while and let your eyes adjust, you will see the things that are in that room, even by the slightest amount of light that is there. I love that the Apostle John uses this imagery of light and darkness to communicate a spiritual truth. Borrowing from the words in Genesis, he talks about how in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that this word came to be light in this world, a world that is full of darkness. And we understand clearly from passages like in John 3 or in 1 John 1 that Jesus Christ is the light. And at least in the life of the believer. Here's the main idea. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. In the life of the believer, sometimes we venture back into darkness. We go back and dabble in our sin. And sin likes to remain hidden in the dark. When that is the case, what we need more than anything, when we are tempted to indulge our sinful desires, we try to block out its wickedness. We try to block out its destructive nature. And what we need more than anything is for the light of God, the light of his truth to shine in our hearts to bring us out of that darkness and back into his marvelous light. That we would no longer walk in that darkness, but walk in light. And if that makes sense to you, then today's going to be fairly easy. Okay, as we walk through this to understand verses 7 through 14. And again, if you're taking notes, we're going to see two expectations. Two expectations of the person who has been brought to the light. Two expectations of the person who has been brought to the light. This is such a helpful passage. And actually at Lighthouse in San Diego, we have also been walking through the book of Ephesians. And I recently was able to preach through this passage before I started a three-month sabbatical. And so I'm really delighted at the opportunity to come back and review this with you. But we're going to be looking at two expectations of the person who has been brought to the light. And the first we see in verses 7 through 10. That is that because you are light, do not identify with darkness. Because you are light, do not identify with darkness. Look at it in verses 7 through 10. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. This first idea that because you are light, don't identify with darkness is of paramount importance. He begins in verse 7 by saying, Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Whenever you see a pronoun, you want to find out what the antecedent to the pronoun is. Yeah, all you grammar nerds, right? So who is the them here? Well, it takes us back to the previous verse where it says in verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's the sons of disobedience, which is a phrase that we were introduced to before in Ephesians chapter two, 
verses 1 and 2. Where there, Paul writes, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We've seen this phrase before, that we were once in line with the sons of disobedience. We once walked in the course of this world by the prince of the power of the air. Our lives and our sinfulness was aligned with Satan, was aligned with the, with, the, with the devil, was aligned with even the desires of our own flesh and the way that the course of this world goes. But God brought us out of that. And we have been transformed from being sons of disobedience to now children of God. And that's how the Apostle Paul begins this chapter. Therefore, be imitators of God as what? Beloved children. We are no longer sons of disobedience, but in Christ now, we are children of God. And that is a remarkable transformation. You see, when we talk about what it means to walk in the light and what it means to walk in darkness, it would be really easy for me just to kind of give you a list. And sometimes the Apostle Paul does that and gives you a list of things that you are not to do. Don't be idolatrous. Don't be covetous. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't cheat. And so on and so forth. But as we've been walking through the book of Ephesians at Lighthouse, and I'm sure you've seen as well here at Pacific Hope, there's this mantra that we've been repeating at Lighthouse, that we do what we do because we are who we are. Say that with me. We do what we do because we are who we are. This is not just about a bunch of do's and don'ts. This is not just about being a better person. This is about coming in line with who you are. This new identity that we have in Christ, that I'm no longer what I once was. I am no longer a son of disobedience. I am now a child of God. I'm now a child of God. And so I am not to be a partaker with them. I no longer align with them. I no longer identify with them. And that's what it means to be a partaker, to be a sharer together in something. And it involves identity. It involves identity, who you align with. Are you a child of God or do you remain a son of disobedience? Because we do what we do because, of, because we are who we are, because of what Christ has made us. He has made us beloved children with God as our father. It's kind of fun. We have three children now. And it's interesting for me. Some people see it differently. But when I look at my oldest, I see me. Like I see, it's weird. Sometimes I look like I'm looking at a mirror. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, it's, that's the way it is. And you see resemblances. You see things that they take after. Even behavioral things. Or they sound like you. You know, my, my parents are here uh, this morning. And, and it's interesting, like the things that I'll communicate to my children, uh, a lot of times are lessons that were handed down from my dad. And I'll even use sometimes the exact phrases, broken English and all, right, uh, to communicate to my kids because it made such an imprint on my own mind. If God is our father and we are his beloved children, then you would expect to see a family resemblance. That as God is, that you would expect to see the same attributes, the same characteristics, the same attitudes and desires, the same pursuits as we see in him. So it has to do with identity. 
Don't be partakers with them because you no longer identify with them. You now identify with Christ. And this is somewhat what he was saying in verses 3 and 4. That immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is what? Proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which is what? Not fitting. If you are a child of God, there are certain things that we would expect you to look like based on your identity alone. And so he says, don't walk in the things that are not appropriate. Don't walk in the things that are not fitting. You're a child of God now. And so walk in a way that would reflect your relationship with the Father. I love that. And obviously, having talked about identity, it affects our behavior. It affects our application and our practice. It's not just about doing better. It's about doing what we do because we are who we are. And so that's a great place for us to understand this, right? Do you know who you are? Do you understand what it means to be a child of God? Do you understand the gospel of grace? Do you understand that in our sins we've offended a holy God? And that because of that we are fully deserving of his righteous condemnation. That if God were to condemn all of us, he would be perfectly just to do so. To cast us into hell for all of eternity because of our offense against his holiness. He commanded. He commanded. And we disobeyed. He created us for a particular purpose. And we rebelled. We shook our fist in his face and said, we're not going to do what you created us to do. We would rather go our own way. And because of our sin, we deserve judgment. It's something that's so striking about the gospel. As I think about the kingdom of God, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus communicated what the cost of admission is. You must be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you want entrance into the kingdom of God, it isn't just about trying better or doing better or being the best you you could possibly be. The cost of admission into the kingdom of God is that you must be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I don't know how hard you try to be as good as you possibly can be. I know for me and probably for you, we can't attain to that standard. I can't achieve perfection on my own. I can't afford the cost of admission. I am desperately in need of someone to come and pay the price of admission for me. And that's why Jesus came. And he lived that righteous life. So that when he went to the cross and died on that cross, an exchange could take place. As I place my faith in him, my sins get credited to him and they, they are paid in full. And in exchange, his righteousness, his perfection is credited to me. He pays the price of admission and pays it in full. And it isn't just that he deals with the guilt. It isn't just that he deals with the shame. He deals with the condition. My sin was more than just the things that I did. My sin was who I was, stemming from the root of my heart. Ezekiel tells us that God performs a heart transplant, removing that dead heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh that beats and gives life and pumps blood to the rest of the body. 
I don't have life apart from the grace of God. I'm desperately in need of salvation because he not only saves me from the guilt of my sin, he saves me from my sin condition and makes me new in his son and gives me a new heart and a new life so that everything is different. I am no longer what I once was. The Patrick Cho that was born into this world died and was buried together with Christ. But by his grace and because of his great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I'm different now. Different heart, different mind, different desires, different pursuits, different goals. And everything that I live for is not wrapped up at all in the things of this world. But I look upward, I look heavenward, and I pursue Christ And folks, what I'm describing to you right now is not some advanced placement, upper tier, second stage level of Christianity. This idea of dying to this world and dying to self and living for Christ and having Christ be everything to you is day one, ordinary, mundane, average Christianity. That's what it means to be a Christian. That Jesus Christ is everything to me. So do I understand that identity? Do I understand the gospel that saves me? And do I understand what he has saved me to? That I'm no longer what I once was, but I'm new in Christ. And if I'm new in Christ, then what you should expect to see in my life is a changed behavior. That I no longer walk in the things that I used to walk in, But now I pursue righteousness. I pursue goodness. I pursue truth because that's who I am in Christ. So he starts off in verse 7 don't be partakers with them. And he's given us reasons for that. Why don't you want to be a partaker together with them? Because verse 5 they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Jesus having come and paid the price of admission into his kingdom. Why would I want to forfeit that? Why would I ever want to set that aside and align myself with people who have no inheritance, who have no access? And not just that, you also see that in in verse 6, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I don't want to be partakers with them because they don't have an inheritance. And I don't want to be partakers with them because they're under the wrath of God. I've been delivered from that in Christ. I'm now his child. And I look forward to a heavenly inheritance. That is my hope. That's my focus. That's my goal. But in the wider context, we also see that we don't want to be partakers together with them because we are already partakers of something far greater. We don't want to be partakers together with them because if you look back at chapter 3 and starting in verse uh, 4, it says, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is the gospel which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets and the spirit to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers. It's the same word. Fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made 
a minister. We don't want to be partakers together with them because we are already partakers of something far greater. That in Christ, we are made partakers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not exactly the same word, but something that is very, very similar. That in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3 and verse 1, we are called partakers of a heavenly calling. Or in Hebrews, chapter 3 and verse 14, that we are called partakers of Christ. If we are partakers of the gospel, partakers of a heavenly calling, partakers of Christ, then why would we set that aside for a selfish, sinful pursuit and align ourselves and be partakers together of those who have no inheritance and who are under the wrath of God? It's like I tell our church in in San Diego at Lighthouse, there are really just two sides, right? You are either on Team Jesus or you're on Team Loser. And that's it. Those are the choices. You're either on Team Jesus or you're on Team Loser. I love the fact that by the grace of God, he can radically and powerfully transform us so that what we once hated with all of our hearts, we now love. What was once putrid to us now is the aroma of life leading to life. He's made it all different for us, hasn't he? I don't care what your testimony is. I don't care if you grew up in the church, you didn't grow up in the church. If you are here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I know for a fact it is the same gospel that saved you is the same gospel that saved me. And that's what I love about this gospel. You can go to the other side of the world and if you meet someone who is a genuine Christian, they have the same testimony as you. If you were to go back a thousand years and talk to someone who is in Christ, they would have the same testimony as you because it's the gospel that saves us. You don't have to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, it says this, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Because within our hearts was just darkness. And by the grace of God, he shone his light in our hearts to illumine us so that we would see his light. And then kind of on the tail of that, in chapter 6 and verse 14, he encourages the church, exhorts them and says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? We don't want to be partakers with them because we've been saved to something greater. We've been brought out of that darkness into his marvelous light. And so we ought to abide in that light. And I love that the Apostle Paul, I mean, if you take a look at it, in verse 8, he says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Paul does not say, look at it, Paul does not say, Ephesians, you were once in darkness. He's not talking simply about some statement of condition. He says, you were darkness. You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. The problem was not around us. The problem was not some circumstance that we fell into. The problem was us. 
It was a radical condition, not radical, right? But radical, like the Latin root rad, which means root. Kind of confusing, but you'll get there, right? Like a radish is a root. And we had a sin problem that went to the root of our being. Sinners from the core of who we are out. We did what we did because we were who we were. And Christ transformed us. Even though we were darkness from the root of who we were, we were brought into the light. Verse 8 says, but now you are light. And I love that he qualifies it in the Lord because we don't come to the light on our own. The darkness, we don't need anyone's help for that. He doesn't say that you are darkness because of the devil. He doesn't say that you are darkness because of your upbringing. He didn't say that you are darkness because of this world around you. You are simply darkness, but now you are light, and he has to qualify it. You are light in the Lord, because if we're going to come to the light, that is only by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light, and it's only through him that we can have fellowship with the light. John 12, verse 46 says, so that we might not remain in darkness. And so as we are light in the Lord, we are to walk as children of light. We are to walk as children of light. Verse 9 says, For the fruit of the light contains, uh, consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. We're brought into the family of God, and God is light, and his children then ought to bear his resemblance. Right? We looked at it earlier in 1 John chapter 1. Listen to verses 6 and 7. That if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light, if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with him. If we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with all others who also walk in that light. But there is no fellowship between the light and the darkness. So we are not to be partakers together with them. Goodness, righteousness, truth. This is what we pursue as believers in Christ. And I love that we can discern it, right? In our sin, we would call evil good. We would call good evil. But now that we have the truth of God and his light shining within us, we are able to appraise and understand what is good. That's what he says in verse 10. When he says, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, the Greek word there is interesting. It literally means to, to, to stand a, a test or pass a test. That what we are doing as we pursue goodness and righteousness and truth is that we are developing. We are growing in spiritual discernment to know what is pleasing to the Lord. If you want to grow, if you want to grow as a Christian, this is what it means to grow as a Christian. To pursue what is good, to pursue what is righteous, and to grow in his truth that you would have that spiritual discernment. Because God's children love what is good and hate what is evil. 
God's children love righteousness and walk in righteousness and try to do what is right. And God's children love the truth and seek to walk in that truth. But there's a second expectation. And we see that in verses 11 through 13 or 14. Not only because you are light, right, then don't be in darkness, right? But secondly, verses 11 through 14, because you are light, expose what is darkness. Because you are light, expose what is darkness. We see this starting in verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. He begins in verse 11 by saying, don't participate with the unfruitful deeds of darkness. And again, this verb has the idea of fellowship with, being a sharer together with someone. It reminds me back in Philippians chapter 4, when Paul was imprisoned and the Philippians would send him monetary support. And he told the church that in Philippians 4.14 that the Philippians shared together with Paul through their giving and thus fellowshiped with him in his suffering. They identified together with him, which was weird, right? Because that was an honor and shame culture. And anyone who was in prison was a shameful thing and you did not want to associate with them. I mean, we can understand that, right? If we have a sibling or a family member that's incarcerated, I don't know if that's something that we wear on our chest, right? Say hi to me, my brother's in prison. No, we don't do that. We don't really want to draw attention to that. But the church joyfully, because they knew it was for the gospel, came alongside the apostle Paul and joined with him and fellowshiped with him in his sufferings. That's this word. And so he says, don't participate, don't fellowship together in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. The command literally means to rebuke, to reprove, to convict. It isn't just about saying, aha, I gotcha, right? It's not like we're just walking around as God's spiritual policemen looking for people to sin so that we might catch them in that. You know, ah, yes, sinner, right? I had a friend in college, uh, and uh, it was just weird, weird. Every time she saw me, uh, it, was, it seemed like, uh, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt, but it just seemed like she wanted to talk to me about some sin in my life. And that's really all she ever really wanted to talk about. And so I did what any good Christian would do. I avoided her. So <laughs> it isn't just about the big aha moment to say, ha ha, you're in sin. You know, I gotcha. That's not what it means to expose. In this context, it seems most fitting to understand this as calling out other believers for walking in the deeds of darkness. It reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew 18 and 15, that you go and show him his fault. You go and show him his fault. Jonathan Lehman, in his excellent book on church discipline, uh, uses this passage to talk about one of the purposes of church discipline. That when we sin, we want that sin to remain in darkness. And the Apostle Paul encourages the church, no, you bring that to light so that it can no longer remain in darkness. 
You bring that to light. You expose what's going on. Listen to the words of James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Is it important that we hold each other accountable? Is it important that we admonish one another when we find that we are in sin? Not just the aha moment to say, I caught you, but to come along someone to say, look, I'm a fellow sinner desperately in need of grace. But what you are doing is not pleasing to the Lord. What you are doing, you may not see it, what you are doing is destructive to your soul. And because I care about you, because I love you, I'm calling you to repent, to turn from your sins and to be restored to Christ, to be restored to his church. Don't walk in darkness anymore. Paul says that the deeds of darkness are disgraceful even to speak about. Right? Verse 12, it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. And you might not see the connection in the English, but there certainly is a connection. It's the same root as what we saw back in verse uh, 4. Verse 3 says, but immorality... And any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness. That's the same word. To talk about what is disgraceful. To talk about what is shameful. It's the same root word as what we see in verse 4. The word is related to filthiness. That what they are doing is ugly. And that has to do not only with speech but also behavior. That when you're walking in filthiness, what you need is to be cleansed. Sin likes to remain concealed. It likes to remain in secret. And very few professing Christians would openly flaunt their own wickedness. Their sin is secret. And it needs to be brought to the light. Sin has a way of convincing us of things that we know are not true. When we're tempted to sin, we, we tend to believe the lies, right? Say it's of the devil. It's true, right? We believe the lies like it's just this one time. Or we believe the lies like I only struggle when I'm alone. When are you ever alone? Or we believe the lies like I'm not really hurting anyone. Or we believe the lies like it's really not that bad. What we need is for God to shine his light on our hearts to expose that sin, to bring it to light so that it can't remain in darkness where it thrives. Bring it to the light and expose that sin so that it can be killed. That's the idea. And folks, I got to tell you, as difficult as that is, because no one likes to be confronted about this, right? Right? I mean, how many of you enjoy being told that you're in some kind of sin? Don't raise your hand. That's weird, right? It's a hard thing. I remember one of our members at the church who got caught up in some scandal online. And there was something that he was trying to hide, trying to hide, trying to hide. And finally it got too big for him, so he came and confessed it uh, to me. 
And I just remember thinking, man, if you only had come earlier, if he had come sooner, you wouldn't have to face all of these crazy consequences for your behavior. But here we are, right? But I remember telling him, you need to understand as difficult as these consequences are, this is the grace of God, that your sin has been brought to light. Otherwise, you could still be living in it. And far worse, you could be continuing in your sin without consequence. You could be living in your sin in comfort to the day that you die with some false assurance of salvation while you secretly harbor and desire this sinful flesh. Praise God that he brought it to light. Praise God for that friend or that member who came alongside you and had the the courage to tell you that what you're doing is not good so that you no longer remain in darkness. But what is darkness is now exposed by the light because all things become visible. When it's exposed to the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. Verse 13 is kind of a tricky verse language-wise, but the message is simple. The believers who are secretly doing evil deeds in darkness need to be brought to the light. And if they remain in darkness, it would be difficult for them to turn from that darkness. But if the light shines on that darkness, then just as the nature of darkness and light is, even the littlest amount of light can dispel that darkness and chase it away. Only then can those who were walking in that darkness be light. To go from producing the unfruitful deeds of darkness to practicing the fruit of the light, which is goodness and righteousness and truth. That's what we need. The concluding remark then in verse 14 is this. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible, whenever there's a quotation from the Old Testament, the letters are all caps. Does your Bible do that? Right? So you'll notice in verse 14, no all caps. And this verse is a little bit ambiguous because of Greek pronouns, which are just kind of funny. Because the masculine and the neuter pronoun are the same. In other words, this verse could read, for this reason it says, or this verse could read, for this reason he says. Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It sounds like Paul is quoting something from the Old Testament. But we can't find that verse, right? And so he's probably not quoting. There are some who believe that this is a very loose paraphrase of passages like Isaiah 26, 19, or Isaiah 60, verse 1, or Jonah verse, uh, chapter 1 and verse 6. But maybe, maybe not. There are others who believe this is just a statement of faith, or maybe an ancient hymn that the Apostle Paul was quoting. I mean, the lyrics are good, Right? In the end of the day, do we know the exact source? Who's to say? But we do know the message. And we know why the Apostle Paul wrote it here. Because walking in darkness unrepentantly will result in a person's missing out on the inheritance of the kingdom. Walking in darkness unrepentantly will result in a person standing under the wrath of God. And so the Apostle Paul is appealing to souls to turn from that darkness. He commands them, awake, 
awake. And he's not trying to make some theological point about how we have the power in ourselves to bring ourselves to repentance or to bring ourselves to saving faith. He's just saying what we need is to get out of that darkness and get into the light. The words actually remind me of what Jesus did for Lazarus. When he comes to the tomb and he says, roll away the stone and Martha being perceptive. I love the King Jimmy version of it. Behold, Lord, he stinketh. Right? He says, no, roll away the stone. And just the craziest thing, because couldn't Jesus have just snapped his finger? Couldn't he have just had the thought, Lazarus, come here? But no, he commands. Lazarus, come forth. And because he's the king of creation, and because he has authority even to raise people from the dead, a dead corpse of Lazarus is compelled to obey. Lazarus does not have it in himself to obey the command. A dead guy cannot raise himself from the dead. Get this, a dead guy can't even want to raise himself from the dead. If the desire is there, it's implanted in us. If the ability is there, it is given us by his grace. When Paul says, awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, the idea here is that we need to rise from the dead. We are desperately in need of the grace of God to save us. But here's his point. The point is that Christ then will shine his light on you. Jesus is the light. When a person is walking in darkness, what they need more than anything is Jesus. What they need more than anything is to see Jesus. Look, when I talk to some of our members who fall into sin, I could go verse after verse and look at the specific passages that detail what their sin is. Let's talk about idolatry. Let's talk about adultery. Let's talk about lying. Let's talk about abuse. We could go verse after verse about all these things. But you know where I love to start? Are you completely forgetting Jesus? Our magnificent Savior. Who, for reasons that we may not fully understand, came into this world and became like us so that he could identify with us, so he could represent us on a cross to save us. Why? Because we are so naturally good? Because we are inherently savable? No! It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us, and that was the demonstration of God's love. It was while we were yet sinners. It wasn't God telling us, hey, go and fix these things and come back and I'll do the rest. No, God understands. You can't fix it. We need him. The message of the gospel is come to him and he'll fix you, right? Come to him and you will be changed. You will be transformed, but come to him. See, that's what I love about Christianity. And a lot of people have this perception that Christianity is just about what we do. It's not what we do. It's first and foremost who we know. And our God is such an amazing God. 
That is what is so unfortunate about being an unbeliever. You don't get to know him. I get to know him. I know what he's like. I know what he's thinking. I know what he wants for me. And you know what is so incredible is that he wants to know me too. And he knows all things. He knows every awful thing that I've ever done against his holiness. And even still, he sent his son to save me. Even still, he poured his grace on my life. It's not just that you need to know Jesus. It's that you get to know him. You get to have him in your life. You get to come into fellowship together with him. Because if all God did was erase the penalty for sin, if all he did was to take that debt and remove it, we would have for all of eternity reason to praise him. Amen? But he does so much more than that. He unites us with his son. He puts his spirit within us and gives us a new life so that everything is different. Yes, I need to arise from the dead. Yes, I need to wake up from my slumber. But why? Because more than anything, I need the light of Christ to shine on my heart. And if you're here this morning, I don't care what age you are, If you don't know Jesus, I can't even begin to explain to you how much you are missing out on. Because having Jesus in your life is far greater than anything this world could possibly provide you. Better than all riches. Better than all other relationships. Better than all possessions. Is having Christ in your life. So would you trust in Jesus for your salvation? Would you turn from your sins and turn to Christ in faith and trust him? Because I'll tell you, he'll change everything. You'll be a new person and you'll know him, which is far greater than anything else you have right now. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to open up your word together. We thank you, Lord, for your sufficient word, which instructs us in the way that we ought to go. And obviously, Lord, we don't know all that's going on in each individual life here, but Father, you certainly know. And if there are any here that are walking in darkness and trying to shield that from the light, I pray that by your grace, you would expose that darkness. Help those that are walking in sin to come to repentance. Help those that are shunning the light to love the light of your truth. Father, what we want more than anything is for Christ to shine on us. We thank you for his willingness and for your will, Lord, that in this dark world, in the darkness of our own hearts, he came as the light of this world to illumine us and to bring us to the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.